When you hear the phrase first-gen American, what comes to mind? Oscar Velasquez, a first-generation American, wants to enlighten your mind to everyday life as a first-gen in today's America. There is a perception in today's society, and Oscar is going to dive in and dissect the reality of being a first-gen. Join Oscar and his guests from all walks of life, discussing their trial and tribulations in today's America. Now your host, Oscar Velasquez. Welcome to another episode of First Gen American. I'm your host, Oscar Velasquez. Today, our special guest, Jordan Thompson, a racial justice organizer, a ACLU of New Hampshire, and the founder and director of the Black Lives Matter chapter in Nashua. Hey! <laughs> what's up, man? Hey, what's up? Jordan, hey, welcome, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here, man. Welcome to the show. I'm so grateful that you can join us today. I know that you're really busy. And uh, I just want to let all the listeners know that we're going to dive into deep conversations and all these topics of the show that we've discussed will be highlighted. And the last five minutes of the show, we're going to be providing a moment of silence for everybody that has been gunned down by police violence and brutality. And also, um, we'll be naming all the victims as well. Jordan, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the movement and uh, what you're doing with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm so grateful to be here. And this is such... An amazing venture that you've embarked on. So first off, I just want to say congratulations to all of you for that. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, Yeah, we've been at this in Nashua since May. Uh, May 30th was the first March or event that Black Lives Matter Manchester did. And we were so inspired by that, um, by the work that they were doing. And they really issued a call to action for everyone in New Hampshire to stand up and to take action about white supremacy. Um, so that was that was huge for us. And I think it was the next week, uh, sort of the first week in June, that I founded Black Lives Matter Nashua. And that was in direct response to the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. And we felt like there was a real need to have conversations about state-sanctioned violence, about police brutality. And I think in New Hampshire, of course, we are sort of spoon-fed this narrative that it's so different than the rest of the country and that things that happen in the South or happen in other parts of the country don't happen here. And I think the response to Black Lives Matter Nashua has been so great because there are so many Black and Brown people across Nashua and the state that have had experiences to the contrary. And I think that's a lot of what you try to highlight on this show, um, which is just so amazing. So thank you so much. Yeah. Listen, um, you know, to step up, especially like to step up in, in times where voices are being undermined and people don't feel like they're a part of themselves or own themselves. And, you know, and, to try to help people understand the pain and the frustration and the anguish that a lot of minorities are dealing with. What do you say to people that are like, these are just violent looters. They don't really get their point across by damaging businesses and properties. And what do you, what do you say to that? Well, I say that we wouldn't have to worry about violence in the streets or looters or people who are a very small segment of the population that are committing violent acts in the name of this movement are um, if we didn't have to worry about police brutality and state-sanctioned violence. I think this is a direct response to people who feel unheard. You know, Dr. King so famously said that a riot is the language of the unheard. And I think this is a direct response to centuries of people who feel like the people in positions of power in their communities are not listening to them. They're not there to protect them. They're not there to advocate for them. And we just, we are literally in the midst of a pandemic uh, that is disproportionately killing black and brown people. Uh, We got, I think, a a $1,200 stimulus check a few months ago. So people are out of work. People are frustrated. People are tired of continuing to protest in the streets peacefully. And people in positions of power are not listening. And in many cases, they are 
uh, exacerbating the, uh, you know, like existing inequalities in a lot of ways. So I think people are just tired and they're looking to be heard. So I, of course, I, I do not condone the violence. I think uh, I would never advocate for someone to destroy their own community. But I think it's very easy to say, you know, we condemn the violent protesters and leave it at that. I think it's a lot harder to examine the reason why people are reacting and rising up in the way that they are. And I think that is much more important because at the end of the day, you can replace a business, you can replace, you know, a building, but you can't replace a human life. Right. Especially when the, the life that you're trying to, to protest about or protect doesn't feel like your own, even in your own skin. Right. You've been on the move way before Black Lives Matter. Um, and the movement that you've created here within the community. How long have you been a part of the Nashua community? I moved to Nashua. Well, first I was born here, but I moved to Hartford, Connecticut, where I grew up. Um, and so I like to call Hartford my hometown. But I moved here, I moved back here when I was 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, tell us a little bit about, you know, a person of color and the hard times growing up. Did you distinguish the difference between being in Hartford and coming to Nashua? Oh, absolutely. It was like an immediate uh, sort of culture shock because in Hartford, you had so many black and Latinx people that you grew up around with. And there's a West Indian culture and uh, you grew up around so much color and you moved to New Hampshire and Nashua specifically. And mm-hmm. when I moved here, I would say it's been 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the only black kid in my middle school. <laughs> so yeah. it was uh, it was a really interesting transition, but it, it hit me immediately. I knew that things were going to be much different. I grew up, uh, Growing up in Brooklyn and transitioning to, I felt that. And I felt so isolated and felt so alone. Um, the expression that I can use is, I felt like I was in the middle of a lake in a canoe without a paddle. Mm. And I didn't know what direction or I just needed somebody to reach out and to feel that I belonged, you know? And mm-hmm. so I, I get where that's coming from besides, you know, being the only kid, black kid in middle school, when you, when you moved here, uh, how was school? Did you feel singled out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not just because of that. I was also like sort of openly queer at a time where, I mean, you're in middle school. Some of those kids have no idea what their sexuality is. And I was sort of always mature in that sense. But also, I think there were other things that came into play at the time. I had also just entered foster care. Um, and so there was a stigma that came with being a part of the child welfare system. There's a stigma of being queer. There's a stigma of being black. Um, you know, you know all the things that they sort of put you through when you are in the child welfare system. They right. give you an IEP and they treat you as if you are incapable of... Uh, performing academically and I've always been bright you know I'm not I um in terms of intellect I'm not less than anyone else and uh, I think there were just a lot of different uh things that were applied to the situation that made coming to New Hampshire a very strange and difficult experience talking about the transition to, to Nashua I mean for the listeners that don't know I actually grew up at the National Children's Home. Mm-hmm. And is it safe to say that, you know, we, we have right. the same background because you also were in the National Children's Home mm-hmm. and trying to find yourself within 14 other kids, you know, mm-hmm. living in a dorm and, you know, trying to trying to express your frustration of transitioning to a community that there's not a, there's not a similar people like you around um, that can be, that can be difficult. But, I, I can say that the staff and, and all the members at the National Children's Home definitely made it a little bit much more easier to transition and have done a great job. So shout out to them, especially during the pandemic and how they're taking care of all the kids there. How was it uh, for you living at the National Children's Home? It was, um, you know, it was not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that um, that's probably the understatement of the century. And I, yeah. I don't think... Anyone who has to live in a dynamic that is separate from their biological family, right. I think they could say that their upbringing was not ideal. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I would say that there's there's just a lot of stigma. And I think yeah. at the end of the day, that was the most difficult thing for me because 
for many years, many people had no idea that I grew up in the child welfare system mm-hmm. um, and that I, you know, had experience with the juvenile justice system. And it, it framed the way that I look at a lot of racial inequities today within our criminal justice system. But I think there was just so much stigma. I was very afraid of having those conversations. I didn't want people to look at me as if I was like different or right. unique or uh, like sort of like the bad kid. Uh, but you sort of you begin to internalize that as you grow up. And once I sort of aged out of the system, I was in it for about six years. Once I aged out at age 18, um, I realized that I had to pa- that passion for helping people and um, specifically the most vulnerable of our marginalized communities. Because when you go into these group homes anywhere in the state of New Hampshire, you see black and brown kids. Yeah. Um, and throughout the child welfare system and the entire country, black and brown kids are overrepresented in, in a variety of ways. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think for me, immediately after leaving, I started working with the National Foster Youth Institute out of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. focused on uh, working with uh, members of Congress to create legislation that would transform the child welfare system, because you know just as well as I do that it is so deeply flawed. Right. Um, but for a while, it was very difficult for me to even say I'm a former foster youth. Yeah. So I, I think there are a lot of dynamics at play, but as I've grown older, I... I, I become much more appreciative of the experience. Absolutely. Likewise. I know you have a a variety of backgrounds that are so honorable. Have you ever felt a time where you were embarrassed of being in your own skin or or because of the color of your skin? Absolutely. Um, Sort of touching on, you know, what I just spoke about, about being a a former foster youth. Like I said, they were, I had very close friends who, you know, just did not know that I was living at a group home at the time. Uh, so that was something that was a, a really touchy subject for me. Um, I was always trying to assimilate as a black person and in predominantly white space. I was always trying to be just like all of my white friends. And it's sort of funny now that I look back at it and a lot of my white friends are trying so hard to be black. And, you know, I you know spent so much time trying to be like them. So it, it's sort of ironic now. But, yeah, you know, I, I was sort of ashamed of my blackness for a long time. And when you make that transition from a space that is overwhelmingly black to a space that is predominantly and overwhelmingly white. And you are constantly pressured to assimilate because, you know, you look a certain way or you listen to a certain type of music, your ghetto, your hood, your ratchet, whatever, uh, you know, the terms that have sprung up over the past 10 years. So it is, um, I think, really a testament to how so many people, especially the people that are in this room right now, I think, we have to just we've had to sort of just persevere through that and continue to, you know, remember who we really are and to not let anyone else tell us who we are, but to remember who we actually are and um, to embrace the parts of us that make us unique and make us stand out in a crowd, especially here in New Hampshire. Anybody that knows me knows that I have a model that for that individual that tries so hard to fit in, but does an amazing job sticking out. Keep going. Believe you know, because that's important. Do you feel like the system has failed you? Or or do you feel like the system was put in place to be against you? Yeah, I think the system has not failed me because the system was never intended uh, to see me win. Oh. I think the... At, at its very core, our juvenile justice system here in New Hampshire and across the country, or you know, foster care system, all of these different systems that are inequitable, I think they are like that on purpose. So I, I try to be very strategic about my language around that. But I think, yeah, I think I've seen so many people continue to end up in the juvenile justice system time and time again. They are repeat, quote-unquote, offenders. Mm. Um, And it's because they don't have access to the resources that they need. They grow up in a community that does not really prioritize or allow for asking for help. And when you do ask for help, you're met with this sort of, like, nonchalant indifference from people in positions of power because they don't believe that you matter. And I think the system was set up that way. It was set up for black and brown people to fail. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. And that's something that I try to transform every day. But I think we, we do have to be very strategic because I have no interest in fixing a system that, you know, was put in place for me to fail. We need a new system. I um, had an experience just yesterday, actually. I was, I was driving with my wife and my windows are tinted. And I have paperwork for my window tin. And mm-hmm. usually they pull behind me and they run the plates and 
they see a young Hispanic on a nice car and then they kind of assume, you know, they, the prejudgment comes and, and it's the stigma. And anyways, the police officer pulled me over and, you know, I had a face mask and mm-hmm. kind of hard to recognize. And anyways, he, he pulls me over and I just, I had an experience before this way back where I, I was driving in tinted windows. And I know that when you're driving in tinted windows, if you get pulled over, put all your windows down, turn all your interior lights up. And turn uh, turn them on, and the reason why because I felt a gun in this community. I felt the gun be unholstered, and I was in my driveway at, at my house, and that made me feel uncomfortable. And so it kind of gives me flashbacks of of those moments. And then, and it's crazy how I feel more comfortable because if my wife's next to me, and she's she's Caucasian, she's white, I'm like, all right, at least I have somebody that can vouch for me. But if I'm by myself. I'm, you know, I might have a second, a second trooper come up and question everything. And it's crazy that the same cops, when this whole pandemic started and, and, and we reached out to partners uh, overseas about, you know, the PPE and donating to the fire department, first responders and photo ops, and you're doing a great job. But then once everything's clear, you know what I'm saying? You're, you're back on the road and you get pulled over and you got that sense of fear, mm-hmm. that sense of disconnect immediately where do you think that comes from? Like as, as us, as minorities that we're doing so much and, and we try to make our voices heard and we're in a positive field, you know, where, mm-hmm. where we can, where we can share these stories and, and, and talk about our experiences. Where do you think that disconnect is as, as we step out of here and this radio show's over, we go mm-hmm. on to our everyday lives, you get pulled over that disconnect. Right. Well, I think what it all boils down to is a fundamental distrust of law enforcement and systems uh, that exist in the United States. And I think that trust exists for good, that lack of trust rather exists for good reason and very valid reason. And unfortunately, I think sometimes it falls on us as people of color to mend those sort of uh, broken relationships. And, you know, I in Nashua have worked with the Nashua Community Conversation on Race and Justice with the Nashua Police Department. And I would say that I have a relatively good police uh, sort of relationship with the police department here. But, you know, after the show's over and I'm driving down the road and I'm pulled over by a police officer, I still feel the same way. It's still that instant fear. It's still that instant, should I record this? Uh, that instant, uh, who should I call so that they can hear me? Um, and... That is something that does not go away no matter how many listening sessions you have with local law enforcement, no matter how many meetings that you have with the police chief. And unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of the time is that it it falls on the shoulders of people of color to go to the police and say, hey, we should repair our relationship and have these conversations when there is a very clear uh, power dynamic and the police exist. I mean, at the very beginning of policing in America were slave patrols, uh, you know, trying to patrol enslaved people and making sure that they go back to their plantation. And if, you know, they are a runaway or whatever the case might be, that they may be subject to lynching or terror or other forms of abuse and violence. And so when we exist in a world that is sort of ahistorical in the sense that we try to erase those ugly parts of policing, specifically in the United States, we forget why that underlying fear exists. And when it falls on the shoulders of people of color to mend those relationships, I think it's wrong. I think police officers should acknowledge the privilege that they have. They should acknowledge the position of power that they are in Mm. and do the work of trying to repair a relationship that they initially broke. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I have some friends and some acquaintances that I went to high school with that are police officers within my community. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel torn. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I'm, the passion inside of me just wants to rage and, mm-hmm. just, and just fight for black and brown, you know, mm-hmm. and the unjust. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, we have, we have ourselves looking at it. A, C, B, C, mm-hmm. forget about the cops, mm-hmm. this, that, you know, and, and then I look at some of the, my, my fellow classmates that are police officers and I see their families and I see mm-hmm. that they're genuine, awesome, amazing people mm-hmm. that really want to do great within the community. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't look at the cop that pulled me over yesterday and, and talk about a bad experience and then condemn the whole police department mm-hmm. for a person, for a person's action 
So I'm wondering to myself, how is it for somebody that's black and brown that's a police officer? Yeah. You know, like that is in a situation where like that's I know, I know, I know this young Latino. He's he's right. doing great for the community. Right. And I, I vouch for him because Latinos unite and, and blacks unite. Right. And then all of a sudden, but then you have your your brothers in blue mm-hmm. that are around you saying, We gotta clean this up. He's not abiding the law. Mm-hmm. This is a mess. We need to cuff him. We need to restrain him. And and to be put in that position. Do you feel that that's disconnect? Do you feel that the disconnect is internal mm-hmm. within our brothers that are black and brown that, that need to voice their opinion instead mm-hmm. of being like, I don't wanna say much because I like my benefits, I like my mm-hmm. job, I have a comfortable income yeah. and I don't want to put myself in a predicament where not only am I going to be a target if I'm not in blue, mm. but I'm going to be a target while I'm in blue internally. Right, right. I think police officers of color deal with something that is very unique in the sense that they may feel like they have a target on their back at all times, whether right. they are in or out of uniform. I think the context is key here. And to give some background, you know, I think there are a lot of black and brown people that try to go into these systems that have actively worked to oppress us to change it from the inside out. And I I have seen it firsthand. You know, I worked on the presidential campaign of Senator Kamala Harris, and she was one of those people. She uh, now VP nominee Kamala Harris, but she wanted to become a prosecutor because she wanted to transform the system from the inside out. She saw how uh, black and brown people in her community of Oakland, California were being mistreated. And uh, she felt like she could pave the way for other, you know, prosecutors of color, but also because she felt like representation mattered. Um, But I think the issue here is you, I I think it's it's sort of a a naive thing in some, some ways to think that just one person can sort of go in and change a system that is at its very core rotten. And I think the answer is not necessarily more black and brown police officers or more black and brown people in law enforcement agencies, but we have to fundamentally transform the way that we look at public safety. We have to fundamentally transform the way that we look at policing in this country. And I think there are are good police officers and communities like you've described. Um, And I think... Unfortunately, what has happened, and I have, I've seen this and I've experienced this not in the form of law enforcement, but in other areas, you see something that is fundamentally flawed. You go in, you think if you give it your best, you can change it, you can do your best, but you end up getting swallowed whole by it. Mm. And I think sort of going back to what I said about fundamentally changing how we look at policing, we need to try to figure out you know, what are the, the parts of a police budget, for example, that could be going to a vital social service that so many people in our community need that police officers should not necessarily be responding to themselves. And I'll give you an example. Uh, In March in Rochester, New York, what we are just seeing now is there is a man, Daniel Prude, who is having a mental health crisis. And his brother, you know, is calling law enforcement because he's not sure of any other resource. He's not sure of any other service. Right. And what did what do the police officers do when they get there? They they pin him down. They put their knee in his back. They taunt him. They mock him. They uh, suffocate him. And he, you know, his brain loses oxygen and he dies seven days later. And we only really know about that. And we are only mobilizing it, mobilizing around it now because they, uh, his family pressured the police department to release the body cam footage yesterday. Wow. And so... My point here is that police officers should not be responding to people who are experiencing mental health crisis. And when we talk about defunding the police, when we talk about uh, divesting resources from law enforcement and reinvesting in our communities, I don't want a police officer who is going to respond to someone with a mental health crisis. I think if you are experiencing homelessness, if you are experiencing uh, what has happened across our state in regards to the opioid crisis... A police officer should not be responding to those things because what has happened and what continues to happen is that people who need help are being criminalized and they are put into a system that does not care about them. And they are made, I mean, to be frank, police officers and members of law enforcement in these situations are not making our community safer by responding to these calls in the way that they do. And so we we just have to fundamentally transform the way that we look at the role 
of police officers uh, and the calls that they respond to and the duties of, uh, you know, the 911 dispatcher who's directing uh, the, the call to whatever entity or whatever service. Because people in our communities deserve better. Daniel Prude deserved better. There have been so many cases across the country of people experiencing a mental health crisis and they look to law enforcement and law enforcement kills them. And that is completely unacceptable. Yes. 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 Um, you guys are listening to First Gen American. We have our special guest, Black Lives Matter Movement, Nashua Chapter founder, Jordan Thompson. Now, Jordan, going back to what we were discussing about people in power, do you feel that, you know, we start in, in an avenue where, yes, we want to make change. But then all of a sudden, as we start cl- climbing the ladder, whether it be political or nonprofit, and we're put in a position of power to kind of voice for our people, do you feel that we get watered down and whitewashed? Oh. And then and then all of a sudden be, and say, well, hey, you're doing such a great job and we support you. And mm-hmm. then you have somebody that's, you know, that's white, that has a little bit of more political pool and then mm-hmm. say, um, and it happens in every area, not it, only political, but right. in corporate, it's happened to me, it and pr- probably a couple of people in this room mm-hmm. um, where you get whitewashed and mm-hmm. they say, they, uh, and by the listeners, when I say whitewashed, meaning that they kind of, dumb down your ethnic background they're saying don't be too hispanic mm-hmm. you you're you're hired and i was hired in a corporate company to speak spanish to connect with my community but when i'm around my peers within work don't do that mm-hmm. that's not welcome yeah yeah it's the consequence of assimilation and i think everyone in this room in some way shape or form can fall prey to white supremacy structures in that sense because unfortunately when people get into these positions of power i think if you get up there, you have to check yourself constantly. Because mm-hmm. if you look around and you're, you've been doing this work and you've been hustling on behalf of the people, for the people, and you get to the very top and the only people surrounding you are white, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And if you're not bringing people with you to the top, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to sort of, I think we really have to start thinking about hmm, how we approach these situations. Because... I don't want to replicate any kind of white supremacist model. My intention when it comes to sort of like capitalist ideals or what success looks like, I don't want to I don't want to look at a white person who's successful and be like, that's exactly what I want. I want to carve my own way. And so I, I think people in positions of power fall prey to that because they see sort of what the man has and they're like, I want to take that for myself. But what the man has is rooted in misogyny, is rooted in homophobia, it's rooted in racism, it's it's rooted in xenophobia and all of these kinds of uh, of, of bigotry and hatred that we can do better. And we should not have to fall back on sort of a white standard of success. We should be able to define and create success for ourselves. What is an achievement that you're proud of? An achievement that I'm proud of? Well, this is probably the question that I'm least prepared for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a good question. An achievement that I'm most proud of. I mean, I know we can name a couple, you know, that we're proud of you. Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's weird to talk about myself, like personally like that, because I try to, I remember I I did the, the, I organized the vigil on Nashua a couple months ago and I realized halfway through the vigil, I was emceeing and I hadn't introduced myself to the crowd. (laughs) And because I, I never want this movement to just be about one person. I never want it to just be about me or, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work trying to, to push it forward, but Mm. I, I want it to just be easier for whoever, you know, comes after me. Yeah. I think one thing that I would say I'm proud of is that I, I ran for office at 19. I ran for state rap at 19. And at the time, I was likely the only black queer person in the entire state of New Hampshire who was running for, for office. And, you know, you hear all the time, you hear the people who are like, you know, it's not your turn, you should sit down, wait your turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who just completely disregard, you know, your lived experience and think just because you don't have a college degree that you can't legislate, that you can't make informed decisions about the things that people in your community that you know need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I heard all of that. And what one thing that I, I'm proud that I achieved is that I pushed past the noise and I, I 
ran anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't win that primary. I lost my uh, my primary by 30 votes, and it was sort of a soul-crushing primary. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad that I did it because it shows the next person who looks like me that this is something that can be done. And once you get into that position of power, you can make the changes that you know that your community needs. Um, but, you know, I, I had no interest in becoming a career politician. I had no interest in uh, using that position as sort of like a, a leg up or a ladder up to the next position. But there were concrete things that my community, the black and brown people in my ward in Nashua needed that I felt like my white representatives were not really paying close attention to. Mm -hmm. And I'm appreciative of the, the moral reckoning that the state of New Hampshire is having right now around the issue of racial justice, because we are certainly not innocent. We are certainly, I think, the, the very creation of the show that I am right now mm -hmm. is, uh, is due to that reality. Um, and I think that video was a rude awakening for a lot of people who had just gone around for so long saying, you know, this doesn't happen here. We're, right. we're nice white people. <laughs> and, you know, right. and, and, you know, even after watching the video, there were people that tried to justify it. Like, oh, she's from Massachusetts. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't represent, uh, yeah. Nash and even, you know, I gotta say, I, I am so appreciative of everything that Mayor Donjas has done for the city. But when I was sitting next to him, uh, and he, you know, sort of uttered that line of, we are a welcoming, tolerant community, <laughs> obviously not, yeah. you know, and we have to, to speak truth about those very clear realities. I think it is the easy politician's answer to say, you know, kumbaya, peace on earth, we are one people, we are, you know, one race, the human race. And it's a lot harder to be honest that white supremacy exists in New Hampshire. And we have to speak that truth before we do anything else. Have you ever felt, you know, hey, Jordan, I love what you're doing. You know, you get a white politician that comes mm -hmm. up to you. Hey, Jordan, I love what you're doing. Um, great work. Keep it up. I, I believe in you know, and, and black lives do matter. Quick photo up. Mm -hmm. Cheese. Mm -hmm. Oh, Picture snaps. you know what? That, that happens more uh, than I, I care to think about. But I think it, it happened very specifically in June. Um, right after sort of the first protest, you had members of Congress that were calling me and, and their staff and all of these people from around the state. Thank you so much, Jordan, for all of your work. Thank yeah. you so much for everything that you're doing. But when we released our list of demands, yeah. when I said, thank you so much, Senator Jean Shaheen and Senator Maggie Hassan for your support. But what I need you to do is vote for the Justice and Policing Act. What I need you to do is publicly condemn the use of rubber bullets and tear gas and peaceful protesters. What I need you to do is to do your job yeah. and actually speak up about the injustices that are plaguing mm -hmm. black and brown people across the country. I don't care about the call that you're giving me yeah. or the Zoom meeting that you want to have with me so you can tweet that you met with a Black Lives Matter organizer. Exactly. What I care about is you doing your job and making a difference in the lives of people that elected you. And even the people that didn't vote for you, you have a duty to represent them. Exactly. And so, unfortunately, this, this happens so often, and there are politicians or people in other areas that try to hijack or uh, place themselves within your movement because it's politically expedient, because it is, like, the trend. Uh, but, you know, after the black boxes on Instagram and after, you know, everything else that people want to do in a way that is performative, after all of that ends, we're still going to be here demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, for Daniel Prude, for Ahmaud Arbery, for so many other people. And that that's not going to stop just because, you know, the Instagram likes have stopped or yeah. because the elected officials have no longer decided that it is in their best interest to reach out to us. The Black Lives Matter movement, for listeners that might be learning or not understand this movement, what is the Black Lives Matter movement and why is it important? Well, that's a great question. Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's to me, this movement means so much. And I think at its very core, it was created by three black women, Alicia, Patrice, and Opal. And in 2013, after the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, after the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Uh, and it was a direct response to centuries of inequality, centuries of oppression, centuries of state-sanctioned violence, and centuries of inaction. Because we've had, you know, we know the civil rights figures, we know the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, the Angela Davises of the world who, you know, went out there and, and spoke their truth. But we also have seen the white moderates, people who exist in these time periods and did nothing and refused to stand up when they needed to stand up. 
And so what I think is so different about this movement is that it is multicultural, it is multigenerational, it is across so many different identities, people from all walks of life coming together to utter the statement that black lives matter. And what we mean by that is black lives matter too. We're not saying that white lives don't matter. We're not saying that Asian lives don't matter. In fact, we are encompassing a lot of these voices within our movement. But we needed to create this because our country has treated it has treated us like we do not matter for so long. And, of course, you have the naysayers that continue to spout the racist all lives matter response yeah. and, um, you know, we'll continue to sort of engage or not engage, whatever, we, you know, we please in the, in the moment. Uh, but what's really important to remember is that this is a movement. It's not a moment. It's not something that just mm -hmm. exists for the likes or for uh, the singular month in 2020. This is something that extends far beyond social media. It, it's in public policy. It's in, uh, you know, every different area of life that we interact with. It's in healthcare disparities, how black and brown mothers are experiencing infant mortality at rates that are way higher than their white counterparts. How when you go to the doctor and you're black or brown, you feel mistreated or that you are not, uh, you know, being treated in the same way as your white counterparts. This movement exists in every single area of life that we interact with. And so I urge people to look at it that way and realize that when we say systemic, we truly mean systemic. We mean that this exists in every single system that it has been created for any reason in the United States of America. And it's, it's more than a hashtag. It's more than a Twitter trend. It is our livelihoods. How do you feel that the political climate, I know we, we tapped into it a little mm -hmm. bit, but I want to dive into that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel like the political climate in New Hampshire is handling the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, their response? Good question. Um, hmm. Trying to figure out how I can be diplomatic in saying <laughs> this. Um, I would say that the political world has responded to our movement in a very interesting way. And I would also follow up by saying that both Democrats and Republicans have not done nearly enough that they need to do in terms of achieving racial justice in New Hampshire. And it should not have taken the actions of a couple of 20-something-year-olds marching in Manchester and Nashua and elsewhere uh, for them to pay attention to this very vital issue. Now, we've seen attempts through our legislature to address some of the concerns and demands that we had, we uh, saw through HB 1645, which is a piece of legislation that aimed to ban chokeholds, that aimed to uh, end private prisons, that aimed to create a uh, misconduct system for reporting for police officers. But when we look at legislation like that, um, you know, in the bill's language, it bans chokeholds except for in the case where an officer feels like their life is in danger. Well, what happens every single time that an officer shoots someone or they suffocate them? They say, oh, my goodness, I thought he had a gun or, oh, my goodness, I thought he had a knife or, oh, my goodness, I thought my life was in danger. And in that particular piece of legislation, you have uh, a police misconduct reporting system that is not mandatory. There are no legal ramifications for a police officer that chooses not to, re to report misconduct. Uh, you have a private prisons ban that... We did not have any private prisons in New Hampshire. So it's very easy to create a piece of legislation that doesn't actually do anything and pass it off as the Civil Rights Act of 2020. Hmm. And unfortunately, that is what our legislature has done. And it's a very shameful thing because they did it in the name of George Floyd. And what needs to happen is that we elect people to these positions of power that are policy wonks, that know what they're talking about, but are not going to settle for less that are not going to settle for some performative, symbolic gesture of solidarity with our movement if it doesn't have teeth, if it doesn't have what we actually are looking for in terms of substantive changes in our communities. And, I mean, that's exactly what we've seen from our elected officials. That's exactly what we've seen from the people who call and say, thank you so much, Jordan, for what you're doing. But when it's time to vote on legislation that we support, when it's time to demand the things that we, you know, are demanding, uh, they're nowhere to be found. It's radio silence. We saw in Manchester, uh, we you know, were out there and we were talking about, hey, we need to divest resources from law enforcement and we need to reinvest in, in uh, public housing and health care and education, really education, specifically education. And in Manchester, the mayor, uh, you know, 
their their city council, their board voted to add ten more police officers to the Manchester Police Department. Here in Nashua, the budget for the police department was increased the last time that there were negotiations. So I think what we are experiencing is this huge, you know, show of support from so many people, but when it comes to policy, when it comes to substantive action, people are either nowhere to be found, there's radio silence, or people are acting in direct contradiction to their words. Radio silence. Mm-hmm. You, you, you wouldn't expect that within your own community, especially when everybody's so supportive and you see mm-hmm. the photo ops and mm-hmm. you see the, uh, the gatherings. And What do you feel like is the biggest challenge and strength for the Black Lives Matter movement here in Nashua? The biggest challenge is the short attention span of the average white resident because it should not fall on black and brown people for the rest of eternity to keep this movement going. But the reality is right now that's what we're suffering with because, of course, we had that big show of support in May, that big show of support in June and and sort of into July, but after a while people stopped caring. You know, they moved on to the next news cycle. They moved on to the next Twitter trend. They moved on to, you know, whatever the, the guy in the White House had said that was absurd or crazy or racist. Mm-hmm. And they stopped caring about this movement. And one thing that I have struggled with personally with this movement is that in order for people to care again, they need to watch a black or brown person die. They need to see a viral video of one of us being mistreated to say, oh, maybe racism is still an issue. And maybe I should go out to that protest. Maybe I should contribute a few dollars. Maybe I should, you know, call my senator and and demand that they act on racial justice. And that's very difficult because we are already robbed of our humanity in so many different ways throughout the entirety of this movement. But for people to act in that way, it just solidifies what we already know to be true is that America does not believe black and brown people when we speak up about our experiences. Because, you know, you hear the, you're just playing the race card, you're just, you know, you're just being extra, you're, uh, maybe they didn't really mean it that way, or you're taking it out of context. You know, people who fight to, uh, to gaslight you and to tell you that you didn't actually hear what you just heard. And at the very core of it, it's because America does not believe us when we speak up about how bad it is. Because this is the only America that we've ever known. We have always known the ugliness of where we are in this direct moment. The only thing that has changed is that white people are waking up to it. Mm. And so that is what has been very difficult for me. It's because on one hand, I'm like, I'm so grateful Mm. that you believe me now, but where have you been? You know, we've been saying this forever. And why did it have to take watching George Floyd with a police officer's knee on his neck for eight and a half minutes for you to believe Mm. that our lives matter? Let's talk about the march in uh, Washington. Mm -hmm. How do you think that went? And where do you think the uh, renewed hope in that movement is going? I think it went really well. It was really inspiring. Um, It was also very hot. D.C. is very (laughs) hot in August. Um, But, yeah, it was really inspiring. I think what was more inspiring to me, you know, of course, we were in that massive crowd, tens of thousands of people who came out to show their support. And, uh, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton, and you had uh, Martin Luther King III, and you had all of these fic- uh, the families of victims of police brutality that were speaking their truth and uh, trying to mobilize these people as a call to action. But was, what was much more inspiring to me was what I saw afterwards. And there is a, sort of a section of a street which is now called Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, D.C., and it's directly in front of uh, Lafayette Park, which is in front of the White House. And the residents of D.C. and people who come through as tourists or whatever else, they use Black Lives Matter Plaza as a place for block parties and for, uh, you know, they, they do their, their protesting. They do um, so many different activities. They try to mobilize people to vote, to take action in their communities. And it was people from all different backgrounds. It was people from all different, uh, you know, it was multi-generational. It was multicultural. And it was so beautiful because it was literally this, this I'm sorry, the section of the street 
that was closed off, and there were people who were expressing themselves in a very unapologetic way. They didn't have to feel like, oh, this is respectability politics because we're at an Al, Sharp Al Sharpton march. Um, but they were able to express themselves in a way that was very genuine and, and unique. And sort of down the ways in front of the White House gate, uh, there were black and brown youth that were jumping rope. And they were doing, it, it was just such a, a contrast, a really powerful contrast to see the White House and what it has meant to us, you know, since the beginning, since the founding of this country and the symbol that it has become today. And then to see sort of, uh, you know, not that far away, these black and brown youth that are jumping rope, that are having the time of their lives, that are taking something that is so painful and vicious and vile and ugly and making something so beautiful out of it. So I think I was so inspired by that. I was inspired to come back here to New Hampshire because our work is, is still very much unfinished. Uh, but I was inspired to, uh, to really center black and brown joy because in this movement, it's, it's a lot of let's do this protest for this thing, let's, uh, let's do an action item on this thing, and not enough self-care, not enough celebration of black and brown people, not enough, because um, when we say black lives matter, we mean black joy matters, we right. mean uh, black happiness matters, that black mental health matters. Mm. Um, so it really inspired me to take a really uh, deep look at all of those issues. How do, you how do you feel about an individual that you might know that says... I believe I understand what you're saying. Black lives matter, but all lives matter. Um, I would say that I'm sort of tired of explaining that to people. And if you don't get it, then I need to find better friends at this oh. point. Because we've been having the same tired argument for so many years. And if you don't get it by now, you're being obtuse. Yeah. So I just I, I think there are certain arguments. I mean. There are people, there are similar arguments like that throughout the entire movement. There are people who hear defund the police and they're like, oh, you want to get rid of the police and who are you going to call when right. this happens? And I mean, there are people who want to abolish the police. And I think when I say we need to reimagine the role of policing in America, I would love to be one of those people at some point, but that's not where I am right now. But there are so many people that try to engage in sort of those falsehoods, and mm -hmm. it's just another way for them to gaslight you, another way for you to, to get angry about something as simple as saying that your life matters. Uh, so I, at, the, at this point, I don't have any time for people who still spout the all lives right. matter. Um, I mean, Google.com is free. <laughs> if you have questions, please direct them that way because I'm not dealing with it any longer. Real quick, mm -hmm. what would you tell your eight-year-old self living in today's society? Buckle up. I would say, like, get ready for a lot that is going to be thrown your way. Because eight-year-old me had no clue. <laughs> I don't think any eight-year-old would have any clue. Um, but I would say... You have a long life ahead of you, and you have a lot of work that needs to be done, and it's going to be important work. It's going to be exhausting work, but it's work that needs to be done, and you were put on this earth to do it, so buckle up. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take five minutes to name the names that have been lost from police brutality. Jasmine Torres, take it away. George Floyd. Brianna Taylor. Itasiana Jefferson, Laura Rosser, Stefan Clark, Botham Jean, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Michelle Cousseau, Freddie Gray. Janisha Fonville, Eric Garner, Akai Gurley, Gabriela Navarez, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Tanisha Anderson. Rest in power.
This is powerful. What's next for Jordan? What's next? Um, good question. So with Black Lives Matter Nashua, we're working with our friends at Black Lives Matter Manchester and on the seacoast um, to implement a couple of programs over the next couple of months. The first one um, I thought I was I would actually love the input of everyone in this room on, but uh, we're working on a campaign called New Hampshire is Not Innocent. And we're going to be focused on empowering black and brown people across the entire state to speak up about their experiences with white supremacy and, and, and racial injustice and discrimination in a way that is sort of similar to the governor's advisory council's listening sessions that they had a few years ago. But it's going to be black and brown led. Uh, it's going to be a safe space for people to speak up about their experiences. Um, but also, I think, to prove the point that, like I said, we've been spoon-fed this narrative about New Hampshire not being as bad as other places, that, you know, we're a tolerant state, that everything is fine here. Um, but I think the most powerful way to combat that narrative is with storytelling. And there are so many people that reach out to us on a day-to-day -day basis that say, you know, I'm dealing with a racist landlord or I'm dealing with a crisis where I went to the hospital and I'm in pain and I feel like my white doctor didn't take me seriously. And we want to give those people an opportunity to speak their truth in a way that is public, that people will hear them, that we have the platform and we want to empower and amplify the voices of the most vulnerable in our marginalized community. So right now we're working on sort of the logistics of that, of how we're going to kick it off. We're looking at a potential rally in Keene. We want to focus on a lot of the rural areas that have black and brown people sort of spread out. Um, and we, we really want to combat this very whitewashed narrative uh, of what New Hampshire is um, or, or has been and paint a really clear picture of what New Hampshire actually is for a lot of our people. Uh, and then the second initiative that we're working on right now is focused on students. Um, and we want to give back to, uh, you know, the sort of educational piece. We want to reform whitewashed curriculum that has taught us very uh, warped views on purpose of New Hampshire and our country at large. Uh, we want to provide scholarship opportunities. Um, and, and we've been really blessed. We've raised, I would say, uh, between, you know, ten dollars and $15,000 since the beginning of this movement. And every penny we want to give back to the community. Um, we certainly all do this for free. We're certainly all volunteers and mm -hmm. we have no interest in pocketing any of this. But uh, we, we just want to give back in every way that we can and support black and brown people in any way that we can. Um, so our efforts over the next couple of months will just continue to be doing work on those two initiatives, continuing to hold our elected officials accountable. Of course, we released those seven gubernatorial demands so that both uh, you know, State Senator Dan Feltis and uh, Executive Counselor Andrew Valensky on the Democratic side and uh, Libertarian Daryl Perry and Governor Chris Sununu all agreed to. And so we'll, uh, we'll continue to hold them accountable to all of those demands. Um, but really what's next for me and what's next for this movement is that we're going to continue on. We're not going anywhere. We love you. We support you. We're with you all the way. Thank you. Where can people reach you? Uh, they can reach us on our Facebook page, Black Lives Matter Nashua. On Twitter, we are at BLM Nashua. On Instagram, we are at BLM Nashua. Um, we are also at BLMNashua.com. So there are a lot of ways that folks can reach us online. Uh, take action with us, contribute what you can, uh, and we look forward to working together. Thank you so much, Jordan Thompson, Black Lives Matter Nashua Chapter. Thank you. First-gen American, Oscar Velasquez, thank you so much for listening.